Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Handmade Network podcast. My name is Ryan Fleury. Uh, thank you again for, for tuning in. I'm joined today by Mika Metka, who is uh, the creator of the Nuclear Immediate Mode UI library and an engine programmer for Keen Core. Uh, hello, Mika. Thanks for, thanks for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, so uh, let's, let's jump into it. Uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar, how about you walk me through what exactly distinguishes an immediate mode API from a not immediate mode API? So when you're writing, when you're sitting down writing one of these things, uh, what what is what makes it different than writing just anything, something that's not immediate mode? Like where's the distinction there? Um, at its absolute core, uh, every application or library has some internal state. Um, like everybody learns uh, at the beginning that there are three different phases, input, processing, and output. And right. uh, we always have some state that helps this process. And immediate mode is about how the state is modified or mutated. Um, okay. In classical forms, um, the state, internal state, is try to be directly mo modified, while immediate mode uh, just begins from uh, scratch, just builds it up again completely, and that's in general okay, right. the difference in at its core. Right, and I guess implicit in there is that there is like state being retained. Right, um, one of the things that I hear people say a lot yes. with immediate mode is that you know it's it's the, there is no state persisting between like frames in a game, for example. But that's not really true necessarily, right? Um, it there's more an accident that is uh, meaning uh, lost some of this original um, yeah meaning is um, that both uh, open source implementation, both DMGU uh, as well as Nuclear, have very little state, or at least yeah. from API usage, seem like I don't any don't use any state, but in reality they both have state, right? Um, so it's somewhat of a misconception. Right. Um, and something that I've kind of encountered before is like, as you're making these API calls, so for, for example, with like the, the video that, uh, Casey Muratori originally posted about, about this thing where he kind of, kind of showed the simple API for like a button where it's like, if do button or whatever, um, what you're, what you're suggesting is that mm -hmm. there seems, that seems to be tapping into some state that persists between frames, um, but that's not necessarily clear, like how you would even get to that state. And generally, what 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 I found arises is sort of like this concept of an ID or something like this. Um, have you? Did, I'm sure you encountered that problem in nuclear. I'm I'm curious to know how you solved it. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, um, we make or I make use of IDs as well in nuclear. I don't use IDs. Um, I use some other tricks, oh, okay. um, other kind of states. Um, but that had a lot of problems. Um, after that, I used IDs as well, especially for input. I use very little state, um, just IDs are already enough, um, and have some additional, um, uh, states that store the, um, widget that is currently, for example, pressed for dragging. Uh, so there we have state as well. Um, mm -hmm. Just for input, for layouting, 
uh, you of course can store, st uh, store state as well. Um, for example, at the moment in our uh, work UI, we store per widget some layouting parameter like, for example, um, a preferred size, a stretch, uh, if you want to stretch a certain percentage of your space and so on. And that's used for layouting. Okay. So, so when, when we're talking about layout, um, I guess the, the interesting problem that has come up for me in the past with immediate mode stuff is that you can't lay out a button before, like as you're calling this do button call, for example, um, you can't know the rest of the widgets on the frame. Um, so there's no, you can't change the layout retroactively because the logic for actually checking if the button has been clicked has already happened. Um, and that, that is kind of an interesting problem to me. Do you, how do you, how do you, do you address that? Or is it always like manual layout sort of stuff? Uh, the way we do it is we have multiple passes. So we iterate over the video uh, multiple times. Personally for, uh, for my own stuff, I have two passes, one for input and one for um, rendering. At work, we have multiple. We have one for input, one for layouting, uh, layouting input, and rendering. While the layouting pass is called multiple times, and each pass sets uh, the requested uh, layouting parameters, like I uh, said before, like preferred size or stretch. And uh, after the layouting pass is done, the UI itself calculates the position and size of each widget on the screen. And it's okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, two-way layouting pass, basically. Uh, the um, widgets at the leaf node of the UI tree specify how um, what size they want. For example, um, buttons have a label inside of it. And the label, the size depends on how, what the width it wants to be based on the text inside of it. And uh, yeah. that's carried upwards uh, to, uh, through the tree. And uh, each layer calculates the size of itself. For example, if you have an, an horizontal layout, its size is mm -hmm. the size of each of its, its, its uh, children combined. So, um, right. yeah, that's basically how layouting is done. Interesting. So it's kind of this like recursive kind of, I mean, maybe not literally recursive, but sort of this like you, each, it's it's kind of like a recursive descent through this UI tree with, with each sub-layer kind of calculating its own yeah. thing. Um, and then you said multiple passes. So that implies that like all of the UI code is probably centralized in the code base, I would imagine. So it's not like if like, it's not like these, these button calls or, or something like that. They're not like sprinkled throughout the code base, kind of how um, maybe people have been used to with like something like DRIM GUI for like debugging UI. But in your case, it's actually like, no, we're just going to keep it in this one location so that we can do multiple passes. Is that right? Oh, uh, yeah. Okay, interesting. And then so come in, so that's like the input and layout stuff. And then I'm assuming that for rendering, you cache state so that later on some final rendering pass, you can just like iterate over all of the widgets that were actually processed, like with their proper positions and sizes on the screen. And then you just like do some rendering for them. 
the the last pass, the rendering pass, just runs all the code again, and each widget um, checks if this is a rendering pass. If it is, it draws itself. Um, oh, okay. So it's just another pass. Okay, interesting. Cool. Okay, so you don't actually like cache up a buffer. You just say go over the UI again and um, then put the stuff on the screen. There's basically. one uh, vertex indice buffer, uh, basically two buffer, that uh, get filled, uh, it, uh, but only um, on the rendering pass. Uh, on the other passes, not, no rendering happens. Okay, I see. So, so the job of the rendering pass isn't to actually like call, you know, uh, like a GL draw arrays or something, but it's actually to fill out this buffer, yeah. and then I guess the caller would actually be in charge of sending that to the GPU and, and rendering it or something. So, okay, that's pretty interesting. Uh, so now now we'll sort of get into, I guess, the rendering thing, because that's, that's kind of an interesting spot for me. Um, one one concern, I guess, that a lot of people have about immediate mode UIs is is kind of the performance aspect of, like, you know, we're building this thing from scratch every frame, we're rendering it every every frame, and that seems less applicable to something like uh, maybe maybe it, maybe it's fine for a game which is running which is con uh, consistently updating, re-rendering everything anyways, but maybe for like a a tool that doesn't necessarily update at sixty hertz, but maybe more like every time it gets an input event or something like this, maybe uh, for an application like that, it's less well suited. Uh, what kind of have you have you dealt with kind of like not re-rendering things in a clever way or, or something like yeah. that uh in general for non-game specific ui um i for one uh, only update on a key input or general uh, os system events and uh in addition um for rendering i like i said we had a, we have a buffer and I hash this buffer every time uh, I'm rendering and check the hash from the previous um, run and check if there are any differences. And only then oh, I will draw. Okay. In addition, the most simplest way to only draw on changes. In addition, if you want to go the, the full way, you can actually use dirty rects as well. Um, so you tile your screen okay. in a fixed size blocks and each of these blocks, um, every command is split again, is clipped against. Basically you check is this command, this draw rectangle call, uh, which, uh, tiles on the screen are affected and all which are affected are, uh, calculated into a hash and then checked. So you, you not only have a, uh, one global hash for all commands, but for each tile, you have a hash to check against. And after you checked all tiles, you take all tiles that changed and create a dirty rectangle, dirty rectangles out of it, then run through your commands and blit against these clip rectangles. So the only tiles okay. uh, that get rendered are those that changed. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I guess like the the whole the hashing idea is, I guess it's a trade off of like yes, it costs some time to hash this buffer, but it's a lot less time than actually sending this thing to the GPU and getting it rendered. So it's just like it's 
yeah. that is less expensive of a thing. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, software rendering uh, used using that approach, so it's definitely viable to use. Yeah, for sure. And you, uh, so you, this UI stuff, um, I'm not actually sure, like, uh, you recently posted some screenshots on your Twitter about, like, some internal tools at, at, uh, at Keen Core with, like, the level, level tools or, like, character tools. Yeah. Um, and I'm assuming that uses nuclear, right? Or is it different? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, our internal, uh, UI, that, um, built on our internal UI that's also used for our games, um, just yeah. uh, develop more into the direction of a tool UI, or specifically an editor UI. Um, but in general, it's the same base code. Okay, interesting. Okay, so when I guess you you've generally had success with this kind of area too when it comes to the rendering stuff because you do have to support the level tools, but it sounds like you also use it for the in-game UI as well, which are kind of two separate applications, but not not enough, I guess, to be separate code. The base layer, the basic UI is very simplistic. It's just the um, this UI state tree. So basically, each widget is a box, uh, box mm. associated with layouting data. Um, and that's basically it. And state, you can associate uh, a widget with state. Um, and very basic input handling. Basically, you, you get an event, a uh, system event, and you have to handle it. But you have no widget-specific code for input handling. You have to implement that yourself. Um, which both, yeah. I mean, a game has a gamepad. Uh, you just don't need that in, in your tool UI. So we have different methods of input handling. So um, okay. that's the main. So the, the UI core itself is small, very small and basic. Uh, everything, okay. both uh, code bases, both game UI as well as tool UI built upon it, um, filling out the, the missing parts. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. And one of those missing parts would be like the actual style of rendering, I would assume. Of course. Yeah, like, and, and when it comes to that, is that specified through like a callback or something? Like in the game, we like pass a callback uh, to render widgets in this way or like something like that or is it just some or maybe maybe the game takes more like authoritative control like okay I get back this this buffer that you've passed me now I render however I want kind of thing or um, there's no callback or anything um, there's one struct called draw context and this called draw context just has the vertex and index buffer inside of it okay and uh, it's passed uh, in the UI to each widget and uh, you just uh, call a draw rectangle or a draw circle or, or anything like that on it, and it automatically buffers for you the the uh, vertices and indices. Okay. And um, so it's completely on uh, on us, uh, the tool UI and game UI to, to draw whatever we need. Interesting. Okay. We also have very different requirements. Um, basically. Game UIs, everything is textures, uh, while the tool UI uh, also draws a lot of um, yeah, rectangles or does a lot of things by, by hand, Right. even though the app also uses skinning at the app. Okay, interesting. That makes sense. So basically there's this draw... Con so I guess the it sounds like the UI code actually 
is more in charge of rendering than I expected. So the UI code is actually saying, okay, you've you've called this draw circle thing, so now it's on me to actually uh, like input the basically feed these uh, associated vertices into this buffer so that you can draw it later and like we'll just package all the vertices for you. Um, how does that exactly work with like texturing? If if I like if I want to draw a textured like quad or something like that, do I send? I guess what, what do I send to the to the API in that case? Simple, um, I think blit texture call. Uh, I give it a, a rectangle and I give it a texture handle, and everything else is handled handle for me. Oh, okay. Um, I think in the back end it's a draw command um, that stores the texture handle uh, and the vertices reference the texture. Okay. If I remember correctly. Gotcha. And a texture handle, is that a is that a kind of a UI specific concept or is that just like global to the engine, I guess? Uh, what does that look like? Yeah, it's uh, engine, uh, engine handle. Um, okay. Basically all the rendering stuff is we have um, modules uh, of some kind and uh, both for game and tool ui use the same modules mm -hmm. and that includes rendering so the same uh, rendering system that is used for our games is also used for the for our tool ui so i just reuse uh, all of the tech we already have so all these texture handles and all that is already provided so i have very little to do with actual drawing or rendering or platform abstraction it's already uh, handled for me right okay interesting and is that a concept that's uniform to the engine so do you guys have many different modules um and then kind of have this dependency tree of modules so if you use yeah. ui then you need to use rendering um maybe sound to yeah. something like that okay interesting um that uh that's a pretty good overview for me um of of sort of what nuclear looks like uh now as you had uh as as you had mentioned to me uh, previously, and I think you announced it as well, uh, Nuclear is sort of, it's concluded for you. Um, uh, because I guess, I, I, I assume that um, you can only work on UI for so long, it seems, right? Yeah, the real problem is more just time um, and energy. Uh, just work takes so much energy from me and, and just time that uh, I just can't get myself to spend a lot of time on it. Uh, especially, it was again UI. I already work uh, five days a week, at least, on, on UI. Yeah. And especially uh, in the beginning of uh, uh, working at Keen, uh, I spent, I think, the first six or eight months working on UI both uh, at work as well as uh, on the weekend. Basically, uh, <laughs> implementing the the or similar uh, features both in the uh, in my own UI, own uh, toy UI, as well as at work, just to try out different things. Oh, and I basically uh, burnt myself out. Oh, okay, uh, at least at home, uh, for for UI. So I try to do uh, other things at home now uh, on the weekend. Yeah. Okay. Outside of UI. Um, I mean, it, it was probably a really good experience to actually like consistently iterate on different things in that way. But yeah, I mean, I, I 
de- definitely get get uh, get what you mean about it doesn't sound especially I mean I don't know how many years it took you to actually work on that thing but um, I can I can definitely I'm, understand getting burnt out there. <laughs> been working on your eyes since two thousand fourteen, so it's six years now. Oh okay. Uh, so first nuclear took one and a half years, and after that I just had one uh, test UI after the other. Um, I think at least I wrote at least ten different smaller versions, uh, just trying things out. Um, what's the best way to write one, uh, an immediate mode UI? Right. So at some point, uh, yeah, it's too much. Yeah, right. That's interesting because I remember. Um... There was something that Mike Acton said, I think, in one of the Handmade Con talks where he just said, like, the best thing that you can do is practice or, or something. Uh, so I, I, I don't want to quote him. Yeah. Because, yeah. Um, and, and that's, like, more yeah. or less exactly what you did. Yeah. Like, just, like, practice making this thing as good as possible. And um, I guess now you're sort of like, okay, I figured it out. <laughs> Let's move on, I guess. Well, UI is a very big topic. I mean, right. I am mostly focused on 2 UI, so I didn't spend uh, as much time on game UI. And they are somewhat different. Yeah. Um, I mean, in, in game UI, you have a lot of more animations, and mm-hmm. um, while on the 2 UI, you have very little of it. Um, and uh, you also have uh, gamepad and, and all that support they just don't need in in the two UI. Right. So there are differences and, and always more to explore and test. Yeah. Um, but yeah. It seems like at a lot of studios, um, just and from my own personal experience, it seems like when you're on one of these larger teams, the UI is, uh, I don't know the correct word maybe, but one of the biggest problems with making UI for an in-game thing as opposed to tools is uh, giving control to artists over what things look and feel like. Is that like a challenge that you have to deal with nowadays? Because I know like interopping with existing artist Um, tools is... Well, for the game UI, I'm lucky enough to be in a position that our designers can actually code. Oh, wow. So designers write our game UI code. Um... So we, the programmer itself just uh, look over it. It's even C++, so it's not like some scripting language or something. Mm-hmm. It's real C++. Um, but the API is so simple that, uh, and uh, the designers also program their own little helper functions in utilities, um, and we as well, that it's simple enough to just let our designers loose. Wow. Okay. Oh, so uh, only good experiences. Yeah. Right. Yeah, because I guess uh, is um, you would probably. It sounds like you're attributing largely the designer's ability to even work with UI code to the immediate mode aspect, or or to like the simplicity of the API in general, which I guess is partially something that immediate mode uh, immediate mode APIs optimize for a little bit. Um, I had a case. Uh, well, this was one of our. I think it's our lead game programmer who never wrote uh, a line of code uh, specific for immediate mode or have never heard or used immediate mode uh, UI code. Wow. And he was the one who wrote the animation graph uh, just out of nothing. I mean, the basic uh, UI I, I wrote, but everything above it was written by someone who never touched uh, immediate mode wow. UI. So it's really... 
and it's not even it not even took long i think it was a few days two three days and everything was written so um it's extremely fast to get into since you only need to know uh conditions loops and you're good to go right basically yeah um, wow everyone with basic understanding of condition knows that if button was pressed uh what it means so uh, right it's very intuitive yeah yeah, I think you said on your Twitter post, which I'll I'll link to, um, you said that you guys were using something like uh, like Qt before. I don't know if that's true, but I, I I think I saw something like what like your current UI code base is like one third the size of the Qt code base or something like that. Yeah, it was taken from an example. Um, I basically re-implemented uh, some very old Qt. Uh, uh, implementation. I don't even know which view uh, I was re-implementing, which feature I was re-implementing. But in at the end, it was one third of the the code, and one third uh, in number of files. <laughs> wow! Uh, so it's massively more uh, smaller and easier to understand. Right. Um, Qt has a lot of callbacks and. Uh, which makes things a little bit more complicated to understand. Um, but overall, the code got a lot of lot simpler and smaller. I don't know how much you could get, it, get into it. But uh, we basically we have a server, um, our editor. We have an editor and a server. The server stores all the state. And um, hmm. all state is um, interchanged between, uh, exchanged between the, the editor and the server. Uh, so the client on the client side, not uh, we have to do caching in all of cases, since the connection between server and uh, editor is not fast enough sometimes. Hmm. Uh, basically, the server also has validation. Um, but we, for example, if you drag an object, uh, the uh, acknowledgement of that drag or movement of an object. Uh, has to do a round trip first to the server and then back. Yes, the server is obviously on your local machine, but still it takes some time. Right. Uh, but of course, this leads to bad usability hmm. uh, in your editor. So you have to cache your position. You have your uh, your uh, editor internal state that you keep, um, and meanwhile you send back and forth uh, the update position to the server and back. And after you, your drag is finished, uh, then uh, as soon as confirmation came, uh, came back, you jump back to your confirmed position. So um, right. there's some additional complexity uh, you have to handle. And um, the more complicated your tool UI already is, the more complicated those things will be as well. And um, but overall, it, the the split has been very positive. Um, you don't have to do any kind of saving Control S right. anymore. Wow. Uh, everything's already uh, always saved, and uh, so far uh, only cost uh, cost problems for the actual UI programmer, which is with, uh, which is me, <laughs> which is not so bad uh, in comparison to our. Um, all of our artists or designers, which uh, would multiply the 
any problem. Uh, so it's better to um, solve the problem locally instead of trying to manage it by each of our designers or artists. Right. Uh, and if they do stuff, uh, it's probably not more, a lot worse than me having to spend one or two hours more on the problem. Interesting. Yeah. So, so actually, it sounds like all of this UI stuff, like with the server communicating with the editors and basically every action on the editor side being validated by the server, that's like... A con that doesn't sound like it complicates the API though, since other people, as well as like designers and people, um, like gameplay programmers and everything, are writing their own tools and UIs and in, in this stuff, right? So it doesn't sound like it actually like it sounds like that's all managed by the API backend. Is that right? Um, mm, um, which API? Uh, the like the actual UI calls that somebody is making. Like it sounds like those. They're the Okay, uh, to, to, to clarify, uh, yes, the actual UI has no direct interaction with uh, the back end, oh, okay. uh, except I have widgets that are basically abstract over the fact that there is a round trip between it. For example, I have a, a text field. This is just a basic text field widget inside my tool UI module, and I have one built upon that basic widget uh, in our editor. Uh, the editor version also does um, the communication and um, with this, the server. So it's another abstraction above it. Okay. But the usage code is still the same. You, uh, for the one using the, the editor text field, it looks the same, but it, the behavior is specific for our editor and uh, you don't have callbacks you don't have right yeah any kind of complex yeah programming structs uh, constructs you have to deal with it's just still just a condition um right. was committed yeah lost focus it's still that just is... each of these is a condition below it uh, it's very understandable and intuitive yeah that's that's really great and I think, like, if you had stuck with Qt, you probably wouldn't have designers writing UI code very much. Yeah, probably. Actually, was a very big problem um, the last time. I mean, I wasn't there yet, but um, the one who wrote it later left, and no one wanted to go anywhere near the code. Um, so our tools oh. severely suffered, as well as our artists and designers, and. Um, one of the great advantages now is literally every one of our team uh, wrote UI in the past. It's even some of the best features were written not by me, but someone else who just uh, had a problem. I looked at the code and said, oh, uh, I could change this a little bit, uh, sometimes even a little bit more, and uh, change it up and uh, right. was better, better for it. Oftentimes, it's just small things that I add uh, try to keep it as reusable as possible, and someone else sees that feature and uses it as well for completely different uh, problems. And in the end, it's it's better for it. So uh, in that regard, it was definitely success. Uh, success. Uh, just the the feeling for the team that if something is not right, I can just change it. I don't have to dig deep into Qt or any of these libraries, so, uh, but instead the code is so similar to all our 
other code we have uh, in in look in right. the way it behaves, um, then I can just go and change something uh, if I if I uh, need something or if something's not as good as I want it to be. So that's pretty cool. So that means that everybody on the team, including artists and designers and and everybody who's not maybe officially called a programmer by their job title or something, they have, like, they're building the game locally, they're modifying the code if they need to, uh, maybe not as much as a programmer would, but they're still, they still have the ability to open up an editor and, like, change some stuff. Um, I mean, in theory, but we, we have a divide between programmers and artists, but uh, mm -hmm. we have multiple programmer teams. We have the game team and we have the core team, the core engine team. And all programmers right. write UI, uh, no matter if it's our graphics programmer or our platform programmer. Uh, all of these, at some point, uh, wrote some UI in the uh, in, in the editor. Um, be it that our graphics programmer added some options for rendering uh, a small context menu to change some uh, some rendering path or something. Um, so it's mostly our programmers that work on the code, except our UI programmers. Okay. They are also this they are somewhat between the artists and our programmers. So they can change it as well, but I don't think they they have their own UI to take care of most of the time. So most of it goes to me. Okay. Fair enough. Um yeah, that's pretty interesting. That's a that's a cool little like I, I had always assumed that it would be different on larger teams, but that's kind of a that's an interesting kind of architecture there. So um, now uh, we've talked about UI and you had mentioned earlier, and I didn't want to skip over this, that you have kind of backed away, at least personally, like obviously you still work on UI stuff uh, professionally, but you, you've since backed away in your own personal work and you've been maybe messing around with other kind of ideas or working on other things. Um, and I'm curious to hear about what um, that is. Yeah. So rarely, very rarely, um, I, I mean, I have a, a toy UI and there are some non-UI uh, specific stuff. For example, most of the platform specific stuff. Uh, for example, drag and drop uh, uh, so, so that interests me, at least in, in finding an API to abstract uh, over platforms. Um, that's something I've worked on, um, which is somewhat related to UI, but not uh, completely worthless otherwise. Uh, I also am very interested in data structures uh, and specifically um, what hmm. I worked on, I think last weekend was the combination of uh, Sean Barrett's stretchy buffers with uh, Casey's arenas oh. and uh, tables in C. So everything is C. Um, well, I tried to combine these. The advantage is um, that one of the things that's somewhat missing in stretchy buffers uh, in comparison to C++ vectors, for example, mm. is the fact that uh, you can they have internal static uh, memory uh, for fast access without actually having to allocate. But if you combine a stretchy buffer with an arena, you basically get the, the same effect. Um, you allocate a fixed size block from the arena that gets passed to the stretchy buffer. The stretchy buffer um, copies his header at the top of the memory block 
and uh, also sets a little flag that is a static memory. So uh, it checks when it needs to grow if it's static. Instead of doing a realloc, it does an malloc and mem copy. So uh, it, it works uh, just like that. Hmm. Uh, you don't have to, uh, the, the caller of the API doesn't have to, to care about it uh, if it's actually reallocated or allocated from, from HEP. Okay, yeah. So uh, it's interesting. I also uh, extended that to hash tables and sets. Um, this was a small um, little test for me. Okay. At least I'm always interested in, in, in finding primitives and combining them. Um, it's also very important in UI. Hmm. Um, there are always things that can be reused. And um, I try to find these, these small core concepts. Uh, I think Jonathan Blow called it uh, orthogonally versus diagonally. Right. Uh, basically, you have your orthogonal uh, features. You can combine these to reach any solution. Um, but of course, uh, sometimes it takes multiple uh, of these primitives to reach to, to reach a solution. Right. Uh, so that's not enough. You also need diagonal features. These are shortcuts. So basically, your your common problems need shorter solution that often are just a combination of these primitive con constructs that are combined together oftentimes added with a little bit of abstraction uh, that uh, help you get something done very quickly. Okay. But of course, uh, as always, abstractions have some cost associated with them. Right. So for example, sometimes this memory that's abstracted, file access or something like that. Um, but the advantage is you can uh, exchange these diagonal APIs uh, with these um, orthogonal APIs right. by combining them. So you can always take away that abstraction, and um, which is often required for more advanced um, features. For example, if you have to control memory, or uh, if it needs to be uh, working multi-threaded, right. and all these more complex use cases often require more control. Um, so it's not about how fast can I get it to work? But how do I get it to work under my restrictions? Right. And constraints. Interesting. And then these more orthogonal uh, concepts are way more important. They're also harder to find and to, um, you have to play with it uh, to find the correct ones and how to combine them uh, and then how to combine them together to a diagonal API. So it's uh, it's an iterative step um, that takes some time and often playing around with. Interesting for me at least. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So there was like a there's a bunch of stuff there. Um, first thing is like the stretchy buffer on top of a memory arena, which is interesting. Um, so I, I don't I want to make sure I understand that. Um, you have so you have this memory arena which is like uh, handmade hero style linear allocator, which is just like you just push onto it forever. Um, yeah. Is the idea there that you have an arena 
and you have like fixed size blocks but yeah. so so the the stretchy buffer doesn't need to remain contiguous is that what i understand or is it of course basic i mean i think handmade hero as well as i think it allocates blocks right so it's not continuous as well yeah um uh, but I also, uh, Casey also has scopes, which are just, uh, you set a marker in your block mm -hmm. and, uh, and uh, you allocate from the arena and then can reset thing, uh, before the before the thing was called, before the marker. And you combine this as well. So you have arena, scopes, uh, strategy buffer, table and sets that come together to one, into one. Okay, interesting. Um, so you so the stretchy buffer is being allocated on the memory arena, and it's basically just the similar style of a stretchy buffer that like is in Sean Barrett's libraries, for example, where it's like if we run out of yeah. space, we need to reallocate, but you're just allocating yeah. on the arena when you need to do that. But and you can also use it the same. You don't have to allocate out of the. You can still use it uh, on its own, but you can also allocate size buffer from an arena so it's um okay interesting utility that gives the same implementation as uh, a lot of i think a lot of c++ uh, vector libraries have these additional parameter for fixed size um, which is always nice to have especially if you don't want to allocate um, I mean, in, in UI or in the editor, at least, we have a lot of library um, allocations right. for sorting or um, uh, filtering. And um, so in these cases, it's, it's often times good enough uh, to basically say, OK, I, uh, I even already know the size of it. Um, I just allocate the stretchy buffer from the arena. Mm -hmm. Have this fixed size block that get back directly and uh, work on that. And at the end of the function, I reset everything. And um, locations is basically a non problem at that point. Right. Um, yeah. Um, and I guess you get pointer stability too if you're working out of a fixed size block, right? Like I think uh, yeah. in, a, in a standard. I, I don't actually know what the C++ spec says, but if you use an STD vector, for example, with, or, or like just a stretchy buffer, like Sean Barrett's stretchy buffer by default, like you can't, you can't take a pointer to an element and expect it to remain constant if it grows. Um, and I, yeah, but that's still a problem. Uh, like the stretchy buffer that's allocated from an arena will, um, will grow at some point. Right. When it grows, it allocates from HEP, so the point around inside the array. Right. Um, the advantage is just really uh, you have a, a small, or somewhat small uh, default size. You know, it's already allocated, and you don't all have to allocate it from HEP. I mean, you could use okay um, the stack allocations, but um, that's always um, arenas just have the, the advantage uh, that you can uh, control the, the block size and, in general, how much space you want, um, which is always nicer. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, 
Yeah, that's what I was wondering about, because if uh, I've been thinking about this too recently, which is that if you allocate, if you if you if you do away with the notion that that some buffer has to remain contiguous, like if you are able to make that assumption, you could still have point of stability, but just do it in multiple chunks from an arena, if that makes sense. Um, And I was curious if you were if you were working on that, but. Um, but I guess in your case, you still want to maintain contiguity of memory. Um, so uh, I guess there's no way around. Well, I guess um, there, if you have virtual memory, have you have you experimented with that at all? Like if you have virtual memory, you can you just reserve massive page uh, address, virtual address space, and then you just grow there and only commit when necessary. Yeah, I also think you can, um, spec- I think at least in Windows, you can specify an address. So right. you can the end of your buffer and try to allocate at that position to get a uh, further continuous block. Right. Of course, that can fail, but you could still add save. If it fails, okay, then you have to reallocate it. Um, but that, of course, will uh, yeah hurt your, your pointers. Right. So you can still can't. Did in the past was um, I basically had an arena filled filled up as much as possible, and at one point I had a, another API call that, that said, uh, "Give me all of this what, what I allocated as an, as a continuous block." Right, and it would return uh, either a new blo- uh, new new allocated. A memory block with all of the stuff inside of it, or uh, if the arena was big enough for all the stuff, it just returns the inside the arena. But of course, that still doesn't validate all printers beforehand. Um, right. So I mostly use it for filling stuff. Yeah, um, that makes sense. So you actually just have you you just allocate a ton and let the arena grow as it needs to, and then at the end you say. Hey, by the way, can I get a contiguous block with this thing? And then yeah. it'll allocate if it needs to. Otherwise, it's fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, In most cases, yeah, it fits. I mean, right. Yeah. Yeah. If your arena is big enough. Yeah. Right. Other blocks. Yeah. I yeah I I am curious actually about the virtual address thing. Like, I wonder what the reliability is like. If you, for example, if I were to if I were to reserve eight gigabytes of virtual address space. Uh, but not commit any of those pages. I wonder what the actual reliability of the operation is. Uh, if you just like, if you just commit as necessary, is it guaranteed that those commits are going to work? Because, um, I mean, obviously not. If you don't have enough memory, period. Like, like if you overflow, like how how many pages the operating system is willing to actually give you, obviously. But um, if you if you've already reserved those pages and assuming there's enough space on the system, I would assume maybe that. Uh, it's pretty reliable to do every or to allocate the next page, but I don't know. I'm not really sure. I was, I was, I was curious if you think if I remember correctly, it is possible. Um, at least, well, there's also differences between Linux and Windows. Right. Yeah. Uh, Linux is yet is uh, only gets committed if you actually access it, exit either reading or writing. Right. While Windows, you. Uh, I also don't know how it works together with uh, swapping. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure there either. Um, but I mean, it's interesting stuff, nevertheless. 
Um, so, okay. And I guess when it comes, the next thing that I, that I didn't want to skip over was the, uh, you were talking about orthogonality versus diagonality. Um, and I'm assuming within these examples, the orthogonal pieces are like the actual memory allocation structures that you have. And the diagonal pieces are like the, the data structures that we build on top of those. Is that accurate there? Uh, no, for me, actual orthogonal primitives is the buffer, the arena in itself. Right. And the set and the table. Uh, these are all orthogonal pieces. Oh, I see. And combining these together, right. combining the arena with the buffer, uh, that's of, uh, diagonal. Uh, that's basically it's the combining of these primitives that's very interesting. Uh, I think Fabian Giesen wrote a, uh, a blog post some time ago yeah. uh, about the problem about modular design. And he compared our, currently, our current modular design to old, very old uh, walls, where each of these stones was rough and was just put, onto, put together right. and created holes everywhere. Yeah, and um, for me, what's interesting is uh, having these printers well or, or fit very well, so that, that bringing them to, together and combining them doesn't produce these kinds of holes or uh, of fragile it is. Right. Uh, instead, they are very stable. Um, so that's what I'm mostly interested in. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I guess you are, from what it sounded like, you are exposing control over memory allocation at a very high level, contrary to, I mean, I guess like the C++ philosophy was always like, we're going to hide memory allocation away from you. But it sounds like what you're saying is like, no, you can actually just call this thing with an arena that you want to allocate on, or you can you can change how the, how this stuff is actually being allocated. Um, and on the the if it's a diagonal um, API, then I would expect that everything's taken away from me. Uh, I just want to use it. For example, uh, I had a, a zip um, API okay. for zip files and the diagonal API is I want it to open. I don't want to think about file access. I want to think about memory allocation. Mm-hmm. Just I want to open this zip file. I want to find a file. I want to open that file or get the file content and close uh, the zip file. Right. Uh, that's very high abstraction. I don't want to think about anything than what I actually want to do. Um, then the actual orthogonal uh, thinking is okay. Now I need to think about memory. I need to think about file access, and what are the abstractions here? And what I did was, first of all, memory cannot be requested. It can only be requested, not taken. So um, you had one function that returned a request struct. Hmm. Uh, it request struct could either request memory or file access which is also memory. Um, the file request was just a position inside the file and a number of bytes to read. And the memory request was a number of bytes to allocate. Um, so you call this uh, function multiple times and it gives back a request. And um, 
if this request cannot be fulfilled, for example, um, my system is overloaded in memory and I know, okay, right. or I, um, uh, I already do a lot of work and I don't have time to further work on it, uh, I just and come back later and work on it again mm -hmm. um, and fulfill this request and just call the function again and it will process from that point on um, an API that leaves full control both in file access as a memory access in the hand of the API, uh, end of the user, um, which is something that's not everyone needs in its uh, in its form, but it right. is nice to have. If you need it, or if you need it, it's extremely valuable. Yeah, um, I mean there are libraries, um, but we couldn't use them because we had um, other constraints. We couldn't just let the library um, uh, allocate memory. Um, right. And generally, we need more control. But the actual, um, all the stuff for zip uh, opening, all, all that implementation was already there inside the library. And it's a lot of work. But the API is not good enough for us. Right. So I had to rewrite everything. I had to take uh, um, all these bits of information and completely rewrite the library to be able to um, fulfill the, all the constraints. Uh, but you could still, I noticed I could still have these simple APIs. If I just find the orthogonal and combine these with abstraction, both in memory and file access. Right. And at the top level, I suddenly have an API that looks somewhat the same uh, as the library I couldn't use. But the only difference is I also have a, uh, a different API, low-level API, mm. that I can call for more constrained cases. Right. So um, Yeah, interesting. Yeah, because I guess if you have access to one of these lower-level APIs, you it's it's trivial to actually layer these on top of each other in order to create the high level api that the like that that somebody who doesn't care doesn't need to but if you do need to care well there's also this lower level api where you can explicitly deal with memory and file access and stuff like this so that that that, that makes a lot uh, a lot of sense the file and memory access for example i also have the way i wrote our tool ui at work um I try to, first of all, what I try is to write the simplest code to, for example, uh, implement a tab control or something, or, in, or some widget, simplest code necessary. And I don't think about um, how easy it is this to, to use. Right. Um, but it's more about how can I create this widget so that whatever crazy idea someone comes up with, it can handle. Um, right. And on top of that, I write additional methods or functions that are meant for ease of use. Very simple example, a dropdown. Um, a dropdown is a very complex concept. Yeah. You have an, a header with a text field and a button, and it opens a pop-up with a list. Mm -hmm. um, the absolute low-level implementation gives you full control. You can control what goes into the header, 
you control the list, you can walk over the list yourself and set each list, set each list element and close the drop down yourself. But of course, if you just have a string list, you have an array of strings, doing that is just annoying for every case. Right. So you have a function that just takes in this string array and does all the rest for you. But if you don't have a string array, if your data comes from somewhere else, you don't necessarily want to create a string array just for this function. So for these cases, I still have my low-level API. Right. That I can use um, and uh, fulfill this uh, uh, problem as well. So um, it's it's very important, um, especially for something like an editor, like our editor. Almost everything is custom made. For example, at the top we have a concept of a workspace, mm-hmm. which is just um, different layouting methods of different views. Um, and uh, on the left side is a small menu button. It's just a top view link, and on the left there's a small menu button. Right. This is just a default tab control widget. But the advantage is that the tabs itself are just a horizontal layout. So I just say basically a top control header begin, and I can just add whatever I want, whatever widget. Oh. I can add a button, a slider, whatever I want. And then I can add the tab slots, each of these little tabs yeah. as well. And uh, even the on the right side, there are some buttons as well. And it just fits. So there's no real custom code. It still reuses parts of my API, my Tool UI API. Right. But uh, it just uses it in somewhat uh, different fashion. Um, and there are a lot of these cases, especially in, 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 in the editor, where um, I need very specific and very special behavior. I mean, uh, most of it comes from our artists. Um, they will just say, oh, why don't you do this? Right. I just need it there. Why? Yeah. And it's your uh, task to, to do it. And um, yeah, you have, you have to get it done. And if you only have these these high-level APIs, um, you will spend a lot of time rewriting the same thing again and again just because of small changes. Right. So if you have these lower-level API, you can just reuse the same core code again and again, and only the small details change. And um, so far, I've had very good experiences uh, by writing this API in this way. Yeah. But there are, I mean, I had one or two cases, my APIs were too low level, but I didn't know how do I get a high-level API out of it? Huh, okay. And um, I had worked on some, just put it on site for some time, and uh, I noticed that, or at least I got some positive feedback back for my just a context menu with a list. Okay. And I got positive feedback that was very easy to use. So uh, I took a look at it because the code is somewhat similar right. between a context list and just a normal list. 
So why was one thing extremely easy to use and the other was not? And um, so I just took what I found out in one and took it over to the other. And uh, suddenly from next, uh, a feature that was previously um, not so nice, uh, programmers was always hesitant to use it because it was too complex, suddenly became uh, just another easy to use API. Right. So, okay. Um, Interesting. A lot of is not over overzealously just implementing something. Sometimes it takes some time to out what the right abstractions are. Right. Um, so for sometimes okay to just do a copy paste um, of some code, even if it's a bit clunky, but at some point you notice, ah, I can reuse this part here and hopefully make it simpler in the common case. I mean, in lists, for example, a big portion are labels. Uh, you don't have a lot of, so you can, uh, instead of, Having an, uh, an orthogonal API call that allows anything to go into the list, you can just provide a shortcut table. And so these uh, diagonal API, low level API is almost like a, yeah, by using it, which is similar, uh, says as well at, at some point just. Uh, you only write a function of abstraction if you use something twice or tries. Right. Um, and so the API develops itself at some point. Um, you just try to keep the the low level API as unabstracted as possible. Right. And build up only that something is used very often. Or so and they can abstract over it. Um, there are some cases I had where it was difficult because um, just because of the complexity of the problem. For example, trees, the way I implement trees right. or lists. Uh, one of the advantages of immediate mode UI is um, you can display very large sets list elements or tree elements by only um, iterating over um, the, the actual visible portion of the list or tree. And um, however, this is also creates additional complexity. Okay. Um, since uh, you need to know at what put, you have your your score, so you calculate the index offset of your list begin and end call, and your processing between it. Right. Also, shortcuts need to be handled, and one of the problems was the tree, um, your arrow keys up and down, uh, left, right, up to your parent, and stuff like that. Yeah. And the tree reuses the list in our case. Um, however, I 
to abstract the tree shortcuts. Um, since they are somewhat specific to how you store uh, your tree itself. Um, I mean, if you want to jump up to your parent, if your parent is not in the visible list space on your screen, the UI cannot know where it is right. since it never is walked over. So only the data itself knows where it's, what his parent is. Hmm. Okay. So um, in these cases, I just say, okay, that's 20 lines of code. Uh, I copy paste it. Make some point. I find a good way. I mean, I could just turn it into a simple function uh, and just uh, let it go down uh, into that function and just handle the, the shortcuts. Right. It's always a very, um, yeah, non sciencey <laughs> that approach, uh, like testing stuff. And not everything has to, to fit perfectly. It's sometimes uh, somewhat limited. Uh, solution that just works um, is an, um, I mean, you can just copy and paste it, uh, right. this little bit of code. And sometimes these little inconveniences are better than having over abstracted code Right. that suddenly becomes extremely cumbersome to use. Um, list or table implementation I've used that are not immediate mode at least Java or one of these many Java libraries was always very cumbersome. Oh yeah, you have to fill in columns and define the right the conversion between the couple and all that crazy stuff you have to do. Right and yeah, there's always trade-offs. Some uh, in these cases, you don't have to do anything like that anymore, but you have these small pieces of code that sometimes or very rarely does not fit perfectly since it's dependent on your data structures you actually use right. for your tree. Every application has its, I mean, you're, you're displaying a tree. Right. So you have some kind of tree or, uh, in your application that, to display. Uh, so it already is there at some, in some capacity. Right. But UI cannot abstract over this tree since it doesn't know how this tree is built up, yes. what kind of nodes does it, have, does it have, and so on. So um, there's that are some times to be paid for that. Right. But on the other hand, you get a lot of freedom out of it, which I personally prefer to ease of use. Right. Especially for editors that need a lot of control. Uh, I mean, uh, I have an small features, for example, like um, certain objects in our tree have a small uh, plus on the right side. Okay. Uh, basically, uh, you have a folder and only specific objects have an effect folder. Inside of effect folder, you can only create certain effect objects. So you have a little plus on the side, on the right side, you have a little feature to quickly and um, this is a very specific feature that, that just wrote in what, like half an hour <laughs> uh, and is used multiple times uh, inside the editor. And all these small things, um, the more you 
over how the tree works and the more you make it easier also and these smaller things become more complicated to add right so half an hour an hour it takes suddenly hours so you don't do it anymore right yeah so it's always a balancing act between how much do i abstract on how much do i require from my user and since i'm uh, mostly the main uh, one who writes UI, right. I still have to make sure that everyone is able to understand it. Yeah, and balance it out more into the complexity side. Right, but leave primal control. Um, then, um, yeah, having a lot of ease of use. I mean, one of the absolute great things about the MUI is that it's very easy to use, and even some very complex things are very easy to do. Right. Um, but it also takes away some control. Yeah. And um, for our editor, we have a lot of control. Um, so we don't mind a little bit. Uh, I can handle that. Um, uh, but the missing control is very important. You, you, you don't mind a little bit of what? Sorry. Uh, complexity. Oh, a little bit of, right. I mean, I'm the one who wrote the UI. So uh, I can handle Right, right. And yeah. It's not like it's uh, one, one uh, either one is bad. It's just a different, uh, yeah, different requirements. Right. It's just trade-offs. Um, yeah. Yeah, trade-offs. I mean, if you, uh, the Imbo is absolutely perfect for uh, quickly uh, writing in a UI for your graphics test or something. Just the code is extremely fast to write, and it just works. And right. eighty percent or ninety percent of all features you want are just there yeah with very simplistic function calls it's um intuitive and fast to use right um the problem arise if you want more control uh it's not like you can't do it uh it just takes more and more from you uh to do it right and uh in contrast to uh what we or i try to focus on is just in general prepare for things to go crazy <laughs> and for crazy features and whatever ideas or artist, I need to be able to implement it. Yeah, that touches on like com uh, sort of what Casey has talked about before with compression oriented programming. And I mean, in general, just the concept of how many assumptions does the, does the actual API make? And um, mm. In terms of how how much do you encroach up, upon the control that the user would like to have, um, and it, yeah, I mean, it makes sense that you said yeah. it's always a balancing act because sometimes the user wants a lot of control, other times they don't. Um, but uh, yeah, that that was uh, very interesting. Um, uh, but uh, it seems I've uh, I've we're coming to the end of the time I have you for. Um, so I want to uh, thank you again for coming on uh, for the extremely interesting talk. Uh, that was that was really informative and and hopefully interesting for uh, all the listeners as well. Uh, it was very interesting uh, for me. So, um, do you have anything that you would like to say as as closing thoughts for for the uh, recording here? I'd like to thank uh, Casey, of course, for handmade hero. Right. Uh, Omar, of course, for his DMV, which uh, basically introduced me to the concept. Uh, greetings to all of Handmade, uh, the Handmade guys, all of them. Yeah. To my colleagues at Keencore. Yeah, awesome. Um, yeah, and uh, 
you are in you are all the way in uh germany so yeah uh i think so that that explains the uh the connection issue so sorry sorry uh for for listeners for any connection issues i I hope that everything was still audible but nevertheless um it's uh it's been really good mika uh thank you again for coming on and uh hope to talk to you again soon bye bye i hope you enjoyed this episode of the handmade network podcast you can join us in making software by hand by going to handmade.network. You can also email in questions or topics for the podcast to podcast at handmade.network. Hope to see you next time.